gals, and welcome to the Stranger Times Christmas Spectacular, also known as Episode 8 of the Stranger Times Podcast, for those of you with no joy in your souls. As this is the most special time of year, they've decided to give you the treat of a week off from C.K. McDonald's whiny Irish brogue. And instead they brought in me, Jonathan Mayer, the most fabulous of all the fairy godmothers to read you a very special story. Now, uh, before we start, I should warn you that the story might contain naughty words and be inappropriate for children. I say that, I've not, I've not bothered to read ahead, but that seems very likely, as it's the kind of job I get typecast for. I could do Shakespeare, but nobody ever lets me. No, instead it's all just cheap smut and innuendo. Still, ugh, 2020. A gig's a gig. Teeth and tits, and let's all just try to get through this debacle as quickly as possible. Okay, then. On to the story. <coughs> me, 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 me. Read by Jonathan Mayer, he's spelling it major, but I'm ignoring it, and written by C.K. MacDonald, I've no idea if he's spelling that correctly, The Stranger Times presents A Christmas Carol. Oh, great, we're butchering a classic. God, I need a new agent. "'Twas the night before Christmas, and Santa Claus was absolutely shit-faced, well, that went downhill fast, didn't it? I hope you got the kids out of the room in time. It wasn't the real Santa Claus, though. Oh, thank God. It was just mean old Eddie Scrooge dressed up as Santa Claus. He was stomping down Deansgate while loudly singing a sort of a version of Fairy Tale of New York. It was a sort of a version as he only knew the line that people argue about. So he was just shouting that over and over again. In the previous five minutes, he'd asked a couple of teenage girls if they'd like a present from Santa's sack, told the crying little boy he was getting a lump of coal as he had been naughty, and taken a massive leak in the doorway of Waterstone's bookshop. You see, Eddie, and this can't be emphasised enough, was a massive asshole. Now, some people might be offended by that word, but to be fair, it's how his own mother described him just after he'd knocked over the coffin at his grandfather's funeral. Eddie, amongst many other flaws, had a long and inglorious history of bullying people into conga lines at the worst possible time. If anything, that one-word description of him is far too generous. But it is Christmas, and you're supposed to be nice. Give it a couple of days, and he'll be right back to being a c Eddie worked in banking. Now, I know what you're thinking, and no, this is not one of those everybody who works in finance is evil, gross oversimplification type stories. Eddie worked for Echelon Wealth Management Limited, as did Vanya Walsh, who in her spare time ran a homeless shelter, and Ronald Barker, who set up a lovely choir for the elderly with his partner. So, you see, not everyone who works in wealth management is an arsehole, although, yes, the percentage of them industry-wide is right up there with estate agents and bouncers. 
at that very moment, Vanya and Ronald were at the Echelon Christmas party. They weren't enjoying it very much due to the aforementioned statistical propensity among their co-workers. The reason Eddie wasn't there was because he had been told the wrong location. This tells you all you need to know about him. Even in a company where the probability of assholery was significantly above the norm, Eddie was widely considered a massive party-ruining, weeing-in-the-punch-bowl request to Gary Glitter medley asshole. He now believed he was on a fun treasure hunt to find the real party, having loudly shouted the word BANTER when he realised what had happened. He was confident he would locate it, and his arrival would be widely cheered, followed quickly by a conga line. In reality, the company had moved it to Leeds. Eddie was, however, not entirely alone, as trailing in his wake came poor tiny Tim, so called because he was quite short, and he was called Tim. Now, there's a piece of particularly fine prose. They'll give book deals to absolutely anyone these days. Tim was the office intern, having just started on a student placement. A few of the guys thought it was funny to tell him the wrong location too, so he'd have to spend the evening with Eddie. One of the group that played this particularly nasty trick was Ronald Barker. Oh, Ronald, Ronald, Ronald. And we'd warm to you because of that Oxygenarian choir thing. <sighs> Fingers crossed we don't find out by the end of the story that Vanya Walsh is using the homeless shelter as a front for gun running. Tiny Tim was very nervous. To be fair, that had become his default state. He'd been a nervous child and then a nervous teenager before blossoming into a nervous sort of adult. He was studying for a degree in archaeology, as he'd always found slow digging very calming. As for how he'd ended up temporarily working for a wealth management company, well, let's just say that Yvonne from the university's placement office is already on probation. And it's not looking good. And so, poor, nervous, tiny Tim was trailing in Eddie Scrooge's wake down Deansgate and was, even for him, exceedingly nervous. This was caused not only by the fact that he appeared to have no choice but to follow a lunatic around Manchester, but also because the aforementioned lunatic had given him something to look after. Tim was 95% sure it was drugs. Eddie was 100% sure it was drugs. Luckily for Tim, it was actually 24% talcum powder, 17% Dasnon bio soap powder, 26% laxative and 33% sherbet dib-dabs, because even Eddie's dealer thought he was an arsehole. At that very moment, having taken a right off Deansgate and veering haphazardly in the direction of the restaurant, Eddie was a hundred percent certain the party would be in, just like he'd been on the previous three. He was regaling Tiny Tim with the story of how he got absolutely off his face on a stag do in Ibiza and woke up lost at sea in a rowboat. Almost all of Eddie's stories ended up with him becoming mysteriously separated from the group, and yet somehow he managed not to see the pattern. Observation had never been Eddie's strong suit, which was why he was the only person within 200 metres who had not noticed the woman coming towards him. 
It is, of course, a well-known fact that many women of a certain age stop giving a shit about what anyone else thinks about anything. This is because they've been around long enough to realise that most of the world doesn't actually think at all, which is why it's quite as messed up as it is. Carol was born at that age. Now that she had also reached it, she had attained a level of indifferent bellicosity squared, giving her the air of a one-woman women's institute meeting that had gone feral. People often apologised to her on sight, on the assumption she was justifiably angry at them for something. Carol was technically homeless, as opposed to actually homeless. The crucial difference there was that it was a matter of choice. She reasoned that a home was somewhere she wouldn't have time to be, as she had too much stuff to do. Instead, she carried her life and work around with her in two shopping trolleys, one in front of her and one tied to her, trailing in her wake. That arrangement should have made it difficult for her to navigate up and down footpaths, but Luckily, anyone with an ounce of sense took one look at Carol and became willing to dive out of her way, quite often, into oncoming traffic. If the sight of Carol alone didn't encourage pedestrians to part like the Red Sea, then the raven sitting on the front of the shopping trolley like the world's most belligerent hood ornament certainly did. His name was Frank, and he was the stuff Edgar Allan Poe's nightmares were made of albeit one with a crushing weakness for a Greg sausage roll. Given all of the above, it is almost impressive that Eddie Scrooge managed to smash into Carol with quite such force. Impressive in the sense of being able to stick your head in a lion's mouth is quite impressive, in that you can only truly say that if you're able to get it back out again afterwards. Carol and the contents of both shopping trolleys went sprawling across the footpath in a cacophony of clattering metal and outrage. The contents of the trolleys consisted of random bits of wood, metal, shiny objects, broken toys, tin cans, the hubcaps of BMWs, buckets. In short, what would look to you or I like a random selection of junk. However, neither you nor I were Carol, who saw things very differently. Quick side note. There was a very keen amateur photographer in Manchester called Albert Quirk, who maintained that a brilliant artist was going round the city leaving wondrous sculptures in unusual places entirely constructed out of found objects. Sort of like Manchester's very own Banksy, only without the merchandising and PR. Albert was entirely wrong in this belief. What those things definitely weren't were found object sculptures. As far as Carol was concerned, they were called wards and were the only thing standing between the city and a gruesome apocalypse, or at the very least an awful weekend containing far too many tentacles. The fact that almost nobody else believed this was a damning indictment of the concept of a collective memory. In Carol's experience, history didn't repeat itself so much as lie in wait for people to forget it, so it could take another run-up at making sure there would be no future. Carol was spinning plates only across a whole city, one full of people who kept knocking the plates over, or nicking the plates, or worse still, 
photographing the plates and telling people they were art. The only art Carol liked was that painting of dogs playing poker. She didn't even like the one of the dogs playing snooker, as it felt like the artist had sold out for commercial considerations. The very last thing she was in the mood for was being clattered into by an obnoxious, drunken arsehole with a head full of talcum powder, sherbet washing powder and laxatives. From her place sprawled on the footpath, Carol glared up at Eddie Scrooge. To say it was a ferocious glare would not begin to do it justice. Pedestrians several hundred metres away found themselves changing directions to avoid the area without knowing why. Six miles away, a field full of cows suddenly stampeded. Overhead, the pilot of a 747 flying to Tenerife diverted the plane off course for reasons he couldn't understand. Watch where you're going, roared Carol. You ran into me, said Eddie, you mad old witch. The fact that Carol was more or less all three of those things made Eddie simultaneously completely right, and yet, at the same time, utterly, mind-blowingly wrong. You weren't even looking where you were going, said Carol. Course I was. I've got a witness too, Tim. Tim did not respond. Tim, repeated Eddie. Tim still did not respond. While he generally would do anything to avoid confrontation, that was not the reason for his silence. In fact, his attention was 100% elsewhere. In particular, it was on the raven who had landed on his shoulder and was now staring hungrily into his eye from half an inch away. You shouldn't be dragging all this junk about anyway, said Eddie. It's a public nuisance. I have a good mind to sue you for emotional distress. For good measure, and to reinforce his total lack of survival instincts, Eddie then gave a plastic goldfish bowl lying on the ground in front of him a resounding kick, sending it skittering across the road and under the wheels of a passing bus. You idiot, said Carol. I needed that. Tough, said Eddie. Don't you dare touch anything else. I'll touch what I like. Don't you dare pick up that old bronze kettle. With a sneer, Eddie picked it up. Don't hold it above your head. Eddie held it above his head. And whatever you do, this is really important, don't shout the word rhubarb. Rhubarb! The old bronze kettle clanged back to the ground because the man holding it had disappeared. Carol lowered her voice, raised herself up and began picking up the shopping trolleys, placing them back on their wheels. What an unpleasant man. Come on, Frank, we need to get a move on. Carol looked round. Frank, get off that poor boy's shoulder. With an alarming squawk, Frank did so, hopping back onto the shopping trolley that Carol was now refilling with all of the objects that had been strewn across the footpath. Oh, look at that, said Carol, holding up an umbrella for Frank to see. That was nearly new, that. It almost worked. Excuse me, said Tim. Carol dumped a transistor radio, a sandwich toaster and a slightly broken mug tree into the trolley before she looked at Tim. What do you want? Um, Where did Tim... started Tim, struggling to find words. Speak up, said Carol. Right, (laughs) said Tim. Sorry, Uh, where did he go? Who? Frank squawked. You don't know that, answered Carol. It could mean anyone. It might not be the horrible man he's asking about. <laughs> Actually, um, it is, said Tim. I, I mean, where did, where did the horrible man go? 
Carol continued to load the objects back in. Washing machine drum, music box, broken mop. He's not really gone anywhere. I mean, if you think of it in several dimensions. Uh, what? said Tim. He's exactly where he was in terms of time, longitude and latitude. Right, said Tim. He thought about this for a long moment and then looked up. Carol nodded appreciatively. Clever boy, a thinker, not enough of it about. He's uh, a few miles up, said Carol. He should be reaching the apex of his ascent about. She clicked her fingers. Now! Carol loaded the back wheels of a tricycle and a wooden garden gnome into her trolley and then quickly reattached the back one onto her belt. I should move if I was you. He's going to make an awful mess when he lands. But, started Tim, looking up into the sky and failing to find an end for that sentence. Is he your friend? asked Carol. No, no, oh no, no, he's, he's the worst human being I've ever met. Well, she said, starting to move off. There you go then, problem solved. But, but he'll, he'll die. I should very much think so, said Carol. But... You heard me, she said. I gave him very clear warnings. I told him exactly what not to do. But, said Tim, will you stop saying that word? Right. <laughs> Sorry. Um, but, well, uh, you can't kill him. Carol looked affronted. I'm not killing him. He's killing him. On the paperwork, it should list the cause of death as being far too obnoxious to live. But, but, said Tim, yet again, struggling to find an objection. What? Do you think he should be visited by three ghosts, given a warning about how his life will end up if he doesn't change his ways? Well, maybe, said Tim. Why? said Carol, looking honestly confused. Here's the thing. The world is full to the brim with people who are never going to first chance. So why are we so obsessed with giving these and get it wrong a second go? Why do certain people get to go through life being horrible? And then when it finally catches up with them, the rest of us have to be happy with the fact they've learned a valuable lesson. I'd much rather they became a valuable lesson. Um, but, uh, said Tim again, I mean, sorry, it's just, um, <laughs> if he dies, I'm going to get in all kinds of trouble. Tim looked up, and he fancied in the cloudless sky he could see a distant figure heading towards the ground at a speed that would require the council to replace a lot of paving stones. Frank the raven squawked again. Carol shook her head. All right, fine, said Carol huffily, shooting a dirty look at Frank, but only because it will cause problems for poor Tim here if I don't. How, how, do, you, um, how do you know my name? asked Tim. You have a quintessentially Tim look about you, lad. Oh, thank you. It wasn't a compliment. Frank gave an urgent-sounding double squawk. All right, snapped Carol. Keep your feathers on, I'm doing it. And with that, she raised her hands, cleared her throat, and loudly shouted, Custard! Carol stood for a moment and then nodded. Right, that's me. Excuse me, lad. She then pushed by Tim, who stepped out of her way. Uh, will, he be, will he be okay? Annoyingly so, I imagine, said Carol. Tim watched her trundle round the corner and out of view. He stood there, suddenly alone, and wondered... If everything that had just happened was all a dream. 
He enjoyed this moment of existential doubt for all of eight seconds before, with a rushing of air that was enough to knock him off his feet, Eddie Scrooge descended from the sky, limbs akimbo like an inept skydiver, and came to halt exactly one foot off the ground. He looked like a changed man. For a start, the wind had seemingly ripped out the expensive hair implants he'd got to fight the curse of male pattern baldness. His mouth was open, his face frozen in a mask of abject terror. Tim crawled over and stooped down to look into Eddie's face. Eddie? Let the Tim pulled away when the smell hit him. It appeared at some point Eddie had lost control of his bodily functions, which had seemingly gone off explosively and at random, like a box of fireworks into which a lit match had been casually tossed. After a couple of seconds, Eddie descended that fateful final foot, and Tim helped him up off the ground. Eddie didn't say anything. He didn't say it then. He didn't say it when Tim got him into a taxi. He didn't say it when Tim removed Eddie's wallet from his pocket and gave all of the money in it to the taxi driver in order to stop him throwing Eddie out of the cab when he belatedly noticed the smell. Eddie would never fully discuss the experience with anyone, although it did change his behaviour dramatically. He developed a morbid fear of being more than a foot off the ground, He also developed what doctors called cascading explosive diarrhoea, whereby the thought of needing the loo instantly made him remember this experience and shit himself right on the spot. Good Lord, you don't get that in the Muppets version of this story, do you? (laughs) After he finally got rid of Eddie, Tiny Tim decided that what he needed was a drink. He found a pub called The Kanky's Rest that had a welcome absence of Christmas bonhomie or anyone who looked likely to shout the word banter. He pulled up a seat at the bar and ordered himself a double whiskey with a whiskey chaser. The incredible tall tattooed barman smiled and served him. Having a good night, sir? No, said Tim. I didn't think so. But then, because it was Christmas, something... A little bit magical happened. I know something extremely magical already happened, but look, just shut up and go with it. All right, it's a Christmas story. We can't end it on a man shits himself in the air. A very nice girl called Fiona stumbled into the bar. She had just escaped from her own Christmas works do where Tony from accounts was being a sleazy bastard with a sprig of mistletoe. Oh, good God, yes. When did a piece of shitty vegetation become a license for unwanted sexual advances? Fiona ordered a double whiskey with a whiskey chaser and the barman laughed and pointed at Tim. You must be having as bad a night as him. Tim and Fiona got talking, and one thing led to another, and well, let's just say, they had a very happy Christmas indeed. Uh, Oh, oh dear, the author has now included a list of sexual positions the little minx has got into, which frankly even I think is a little bit much. Having said that, let's have a look. Done it, done it, done it. Done it. Tried it. Didn't like it. Done it. Invented it. (laughs) You're very welcome. Done it. And, oh, wait a minute. Heterosexuals can't do that one unless... Oh, oh, I see. Oh, dirty. Well, 
That's some mischief the elf on the shelf never thought he'd be getting up to. <laughs> anyway, anyway, two years later, Tim and Fiona got married. And do you know who was Tim's best man? What? No, not Eddie bloody Scrooge. He was at home perpetually shitting himself. No, it was Darren, Tim's friend from chess club. Why would you think it would be Eddie? Honestly, it's like none of you people pay a blind bit of attention. Either that or you're still thinking about the elf on the shelf thing. (laughs) Filth. (laughs) Anyway, finally, this is over. God... And from all of us at the Stranger Times, a very Merry Christmas to one and to all. Right, that's me. And my invoice is going to be paid in seven days, yes? Well, it better bloody had be. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Stranger Times podcast. If you've enjoyed it, then please leave a rating wherever you get your pods. It really does help. And The Stranger Times novel by C.K. McDonnell is out on January the 14th, 2021 and is available to pre-order right now from all good bookshops and some bad ones. And check out thestrangertimes.com for more weird news and to sign up to the newsletter where you can also get yourself a sweet free ebook containing some Stranger Times short stories. This podcast is produced by Rob B. at BEE with Ed Wilson exec producing and all materials are copyright McFory Inc. Limited. All the short stories are written by me, C.K. McDonald, and I also write the news with additional material by Sam Gore, Graham Goring, Cam Johnson, Mick Ferry, Scott Bennett, Andy White and Juliette Myers. The news is read by James Cook and the music is done by Alan McGuire with John McCullough as musical Sven Galley. Sven Galley